0: Welcome to Heroin City, the podcast championing women and putting them back into the history books. I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we will be talking about the 17th century spy turned professional writer, Afra Ben. With us in Heroin City today is Claire Amius. She is an actor who trained at RADA and Breton Hall. Her screen work includes numerous roles in film and TV and her list of stage credits is long and varied, leading through to her creating the one-woman show The Masks of Afroben with herself playing the titular role. The show is currently touring the UK. Claire reprised the role in her follow-up play Oranges and in Ink about the friendship of Nell Gwyn and Afroben, which had a West End run and was nominated for an Off-West End Oncom Award. Claire also acts, writes and directs for her theatre company A Monkey with Symbols. Welcome through the gates of Heroine City, Claire.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Lindsay.
0: The reason you're here is because you have a one-woman show about Afra Ben, so we will get onto all of this, but I wanted you to, obviously you've, you've studied her and you know her inside out because you've played her, so I would like you, for everyone that doesn't necessarily know about her work or who she is and how fascinating her life is, I would love you to just give us a nutshell overview of this amazing woman.
1: So Afra Ben was the first professional writer in English. She was born in 1640 in Canterbury. And it is argued what her actual background was, but most scholars now say that she was the daughter of a barber and a wet nurse. She came to prominence through her mother, she was the wet nurse to a wealthy family. Uh, the Culpeper family. That was how Aphra Ben then became a spy for King Charles II in the Dutch Wars. So she went abroad, went to Antwerp, and became a spy there, and that's what my one woman show is about. Then, through the connections that she made through spying, she met the theatre manager Thomas Killigrew, who was the manager of the King's Company Theatre, and that was how she started to become a script copier for the King's Company Theatre, and eventually a playwright in 1670. And then she became incredibly successful and prolific as a playwright. She wrote potentially the first ever novel, Orinoco, which a lot of uh, English literature scholars will know about, which was not necessarily an anti-slavery per se, but it was certainly against slavery and had a a sympathetic non-white lead. She was ahead of her time. She wrote about feminism in the 1670s and 80s. She was writing in a way that a lot of playwrights weren't at the time. She was an extraordinary woman who had an extraordinary life.
0: Gosh, there's so much to unpick in just what you've said there, which is what we're here to do. Shall we start with the spying? Because I think the funny thing is, is that we know a for her plays and her books, if you know her work. But the pre that period, she was doing all sorts of espionage work. Could you tell us a bit about that and, and what the play is about then? Well, I
1: can't tell you too much because obviously I want you to come and see the play. <laughs> but essentially it was to do with a potential Dutch invasion. And being female, she would be less suspected as a spy. It was easy to have a cover story of why she would be there. Her husband had been Dutch, so she had a reason to be abroad, to look at assets which were left. Quite dangerous to be in that part of the world at that point, if you were English. Nevertheless, it it was a reasonable cover story that could be believable. And that's why she was picked apart from her connections. And she was also literate and witty and clever and she was known to be an intelligent woman who would be able to do these duties.
0: So she was picked, you said, picked because of her credentials. Did she speak Flemish?
1: She spoke many languages. So she spoke French fluently and different parts of the Netherlands were owned and run by different Spanish part, Dutch part. French part, so it was absolutely acceptable to be uh, fluent in French.
0: And she was already in those circles then, so at this point she was already part of the court, the entourage, to be picked. So her journey into that, we know much about that.
1: As I say, her mother was witness to Thomas Colepepper. so this is a very well-thought-of, wealthy family in Kent. was brought up almost as a sister to Thomas Culpepper. So he introduced her to other friends. The specifications of her education are unknown. So whether she learned Latin languages about literature, the classics certainly, through a shared tutor, we don't know for certain, but it must have been something like that. It was quite unusual for A woman of her status, a girl of her status, to have that education. That may well have been part of the journey that she went on. There's a lot of gaps. It's taken a long time even to verify that her family were not a lieutenant general of six and thirty islands which is the way that the first person narrator describes their background in Orinoco, which for a very long time was assumed to be her background because she did go to Suriname, potentially as a spy as well. But because there was this link in Orinoco, the plot is that the young heroine goes to Suriname, in this case as the daughter of this important man, Lieutenant General of Suriname and many other islands, who then, he dies and she's left in Suriname and then becomes part of this community. in the West Indies, where there's slavery and she comes in contact with Oroonoke. Considering this is the first novel, so it's unusual for longer fictional tales, it was assumed that this was autobiographical, and potentially it was partially, but now it's very doubtful we realise that she was actually the daughter of a Lieutenant General and is actually much more humble background. Top scholars and academics are still wondering about where she came from, the details of where she was educated, the details of her background and how she grew up are quite sparse really but we do know that it was very unusual for a young woman to have an education of that standard even if they were aristocratic as girls weren't supposed to go to university I
0: was just thinking because the civil wars were happening when she was younger so she would have been growing up at a time when women their roles were being flipped or used like you say for espionage because people assumed one certain thing of a woman and they were able to play with that so there was a lot of shifting going on as always when there's a war so that's That might be some of what's gone on there, isn't it, in her formative
1: years? Yeah, absolutely. And what happens is that Charles II comes to the throne. There's the restoration. And suddenly women are certainly in prominence at court and as actresses on stage. So this is the first thing that happens. So this is brought over from France. So Charles II has been brought up essentially in France and is very much influenced by the French court. He's been taken with actresses and the French theatre and comedy, and he brings that culture with him when he is restored to the throne. She benefited from that, certainly.
0: Yeah, because before that, it was banned. Women weren't allowed to be on the stage, let alone speak on stage and all those other things. I, I just heard recently that Henrietta Maria, when she was young, used to be in masks and used to actually shock horror speak during these masks at court and she was told she wasn't allowed to do that anymore really interesting so you've got that kind of landscape that she grew up in and then all of a sudden the restoration the merry monarch who's bringing all his mistresses (laughs) with him (laughs) doing it the french way the destiny must have been a certain joviality around, just from the fact that all this creativity was happening.
1: And also the contrast to what had come before. So no dancing, no singing in public, you know, and suddenly you've got theatre and much dancing, much singing and uh, creativity of all kinds. And you've got these writers who are coming up who are very naughty (laughs) and people like Rochester and Dryden and they are the spirit of the age and their writing was an inspiration to somebody like Afra, who was a free-spirited woman, but she had her own slant on it as well, being female.
0: Because hers were of the same ilk, she had some of her poetry that was attributed to Rochester at one point, and they've realised it wasn't Rochester.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of that happening at that time, so copyright wasn't <laughs> what it <laughs> is now. I mean, The Rover, Afra Ben's most famous play, the storyline is based on a play by... Thomas Killigrew, the theatre manager I mentioned earlier, and Nell Gwyn was supposed to be cast in it, but it never happened. Years later, you know, it gets rewritten by Afro Bell, and it's a massive hit, and it's a very different play. Every line is rewritten, it's just taken the plot. But that was completely acceptable at the time, and it was something that happened. People took each other's work, rewrote it, reworked it. It wasn't something that was like, oh, my goodness, you've taken that plot.
0: Yeah. I mean, Give me my royalties, so- well, you owe me money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's really interesting, isn't it? It's like riffing on it and like remixes and fan fiction and things like that, isn't it? It's kind of interesting.
1: Absolutely.
0: But your face lit up when we were talking about the court and how wonderful it was with all this singing and dancing, all this creativity. And mine did too, because obviously we're both performers, so that speaks to us on many levels. Is that one of the reasons you were drawn to AfroBand? Tell me about why you were drawn to Afroben specifically.
1: I first... Came across the Rover at the second hand bookstore opposite the National Theatre when I was in my early 20s. Had vaguely heard of Afra Ben, but hadn't seen or read any of her plays, not massively surprisingly because they're not that often put on. And so I read it and thought, oh my God, this is amazing. I'd love to be in this. And um, what great female characters. And I just felt immediately attracted to it cut to about 10 years later and i've decided to go back to drama school again and i've gone and done an ma at rada and one of my tutors andrew brisneski happens to mention in a class on restoration comedy somebody should write a one-woman show about afroben because i don't know one and she's just this brilliant woman Who people don't know enough about, and so I start, um, as a lot of people did in that class, I'm sure. I just, you know, I started reading about her, and kind of got hooked because I started reading the first biography of her. (laughs) I've read three, but um, I started to kind of go, oh my God, who is this woman? What an extraordinary background. Just this this journey to becoming professional female writer in in English you just go how, how did you manage that at this time I mean okay you've got a slightly more beneficial kind of surroundings to become a writer if you're female but not much I mean she was called a hermaphrodite because she was doing the job of a man you know she was unnatural I mean she had to put up with a lot to kind of even take that position she must have been fairly hardy and very confident I think in herself, abilities to put up with all of the satires that were written about her, because it was such an unusual thing for a woman to do, and a lot was made of her promiscuity and things like that, because you know the word whore was used about because she was doing something that was not ladylike and not reserved. My interest really became slightly addictive because I just thought, wow, what an amazing woman. How did she navigate this situation to attain this position of a writer? When you're a working class woman as well, she's the daughter of a barber and a wet nurse. Of course, there were female writers at that time, but they were all aristocratic and they were doing it as a hobby, essentially. And they were writing very different plays, I would say, as well, because she was sort of freed from that... Gentility. You know, she's writing quite racy stuff and it's quite opinionated work, and that's what I love about it. Three biographies later, I've read all of her plays by this point and a lot of her poems and her novels. It t- basically takes about two years of reading, and so uh, by this point, I'm at information overload. And I kind of go, I don't know even what to do with this. I'm going to give up on the idea of, of writing a one-woman show. Too much information. And all of these biographies, by the way, disagree with each other. Yes. Okay. So this is a massive problem because there are so many gaps. If you're researching something historically, you need concrete proof. You're not working tittle-tattle what somebody's written about somebody. It's not necessarily proof. It, it could be gossip. So... You get too much information. And I did a lot of directing her plays just to get to know them. So I did a patchwork of biographical scenes, potentially, from her plays. So it was anything that related to debtor's prison, spying, the theatre, disguises, all of these things. And I kind of patched them together into a performance of those that I directed with other actors. I directed a version of The Lucky Chance, very dark, darkly humoured play. Very funny. And then I was offered a slot at the Women in War Festival run by the So-and-so Arts Club. That was when I came up with the idea of doing the one-woman show, because I thought, oh my goodness, let's just do the spying. Let's do the spying. Let's use that one chunk. We've got the most information about that section of our history. There's an the actual verified fact. Lots of documents, letters, court proceedings, all of this sort of thing. Threats for debtors' prison. We can basis on around what actually happened and so that was the basis and i felt that was manageable and it went down very well at the women in war festival and then did a little tour so this is my one show the master of Afra ben one i'm performing now and it touches on how she became a writer and her writing because it's a sort of cancelled performance of the rover and so it does touch on the theatrical side of her life but doesn't focus on it my later play oranges and in ink about Afra ben and Nell Gwyn and their friendship which may or may not have been absolutely 100 true because that's based on satires of the time. There were many satires about a particular anecdote I'll tell you about later, perhaps. Her play, The Feigned Courtesans, there's an introduction by Aphra Ben to Nell Gwyn, where she's absolutely gushing about Nell Gwynn. These pieces of information, as well as a biography as well by Charles Beauclerc, direct descendant of... Nell Gwyn and Charles II. Yeah, so Beauclair was the name that was given to that part of the family and were given a title that was their title essentially. And uh, he's also an academic and lectures about uh, 17th century history and literature. He's written a book, a Nell Gwyn Mistress to a King and so in there he very much focuses on friendship. Between Mel Gwynn and Afra Ben. I've used that as a starting point for that play, Orange is an Ink. And all this theatre history, it's a time when it's very difficult. To be an actor, and it's very difficult to be a writer if you're female, as I'm sure you'll agree. There are certain aspects of that struggle that actor or actress particularly will identify with,
0: and all parts of that struggle, because of formative years, the things that she did before she started writing, which obviously informed her work. I'm going to unpick <laughs> a few things that you said there, because there's so many things that I want to <laughs> drill down on that you said. I definitely relate to it. I relate to her as a woman. I wrote to her as a woman in a patriarchal world, trying to pursue creativity in the way that she did. Let's go back to what you were saying about the fact that she must have been, and again, we're going to infer here because this is all our piecing together of information that we can see. But you've got to think, one, she must have had a lot of charisma and I'm sure that's written about. And she was witty and she was clever because we can see that in the writing. But like you say, she must have had a really strong sense of self and confidence because even just that journey through spying and what that must have entailed and she persevered for quite a while when it got really hard, didn't it? You were talking about the debtors in prison. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Because I think what's interesting about that is that it must have informed what she did after that.
1: Oh, absolutely. That's the point that I started from in my kind of trying to find a play version, a biographical play of her life, and failed at first because not enough information about certain things and then too much information about others. So you start looking to the plays, and there is a lot of debt in the plays. It's sort of turning up. There's a lot of disguise... There are lots of people pretending to be who they're not, inveiling their way into, you know, situations. So there's a lot of spying and, and mystery and mask wearing, literally and figuratively sometimes. There's life experience in her plays that a lot of women would not have been through. They would have had to kind of ape, essentially, male playwrights to write that sort of play if she hadn't have had that kind of life and those kind of experiences. She has lived. This is a woman who's writing from quite exciting, dangerous experiences. I think there's a lot of darkness in her plays as well, actually, and danger. And not just about the precariousness of being in these situations, which is a lot of Florinda in the Rover. I mean, it's kind of a comedy scene originally, but there's an attempted rape. Actually, there's a lot of darkness in that. And now it's quite difficult to stage that, I think, in a modern way. But I think there are two things going on. There is this comedy buffoonish character who is then attempting rape and this, this girl who's in actually in, in quite a lot of danger I don't think she shies away from that in her writing it's not written in a packed way at all and perhaps that's part of her being a woman writing about that obviously there are lots of rapes in many plays of the time you know or, or attempted rape that's the kind of main plot point of you know the poor damsel in distress she's at danger from the you know the rake or whatever but she's writing it about it in a different way
0: I mean, for me, I think it rings true that that might be the key to the fact that people still discover her now and it still resonates even all these years afterwards. Obviously, you put it in context at the time and it's really impressive, but she can still kind of make the eyebrows raise and go, oh, you know, she has that ability. So, like you say, it was authentic to her as a human being. I mean, obviously, it was the, the genre at the time and people were very much kind of pushing the boundaries, but... She wasn't afraid to do that. And I think it stands out in her work now still, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely. And it was a quality that led to her being forgotten or hidden from history for a long time in the Victorian era, because she was essentially doing what the boys were doing, but also more and commenting on marriage Very critical of marriage, as you know. Not marriage as in a romantic institution, romantic as in a transaction. And there's a lot of comparisons between courtesans or whores, you know, and the position of a wife. Obviously, she's coming from the position of a woman who's had a very unsuccessful marriage, a very unhappy marriage. She's critical of the institution itself as well, which again, to a Victorian audience, viewing that was absolutely disgusting and despicable. A woman is writing about this. And so she disappears for a long time until the 1980s, when people start to take an interest in her. But I think it is that what you say, she seems very fresh and very modern in a way that like a sharp knife cutting through the subject. I think it feels keen.
0: You were talking about the masks of Afroben and the fact that she obviously was part of that when it came to the espionage and saw all the tricky dealings and people pretended to be people that they weren't etc it just makes me think that she was then keenly aware of that in, in every part of her life so whenever there was kind of bs she was able to kind of get hold on of it and then maybe write about it in a way that was really fresh she's just a very astute aware person
1: isn't she that's able to then put that in the plays absolutely it's a beautiful uh, prologue for the rover where it's about new plays and the way that new writers get treated so it's a joke. Whether it's written by her or uh, another playwright, often they were written by somebody else. There is a joke in there about when somebody notices in the audience that they're being lampooned, they take it badly. Whether the play is good or not, they will take a personal interest in condemning the play. And I think there's a lot of that in the critical responses to her plays at The time. She's incredibly popular. She's as prolific as Dryden in that era. It took her a while, but, you know, by the time... That she, she, seven years later, after her first play, by the time she's written The Rover, she's very successful for a time. The satires that are written about her at the time are vicious. In the introductions, she writes about the, how she is treated as a female writer. Some of this is in the play, actually, quoted in my play, because it's, it's that sense of veracity of what it was like to be a woman then doing what she was doing. And I felt that people need to hear those words. Notes written in the margins of her plays as well. I am not content to write for a third night only. I value fame as much as any hero, meaning man, right? Than heroin. This is in the, the margin of the lucky chance. Just goes to show what she wanted. She, she had absolute confidence in her abilities, but she felt this struggle as well about the way that she was perceived because she was female. Enough to write it to herself. Write note to self here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's brilliant. So what was her commentary on fame? What what was the observation about fame you said there?
1: I'm not content to write for a third night only. So the third night was when the writer would get paid. So you would have your show on. The management would get the first two nights fees. If it made it to the third night, then the writer would get paid. And then it was a success. Gotcha. Because there were audiences interested in it, yeah. word would get around. She doesn't just want to make a living from it. That's part of it. She does want to make a living. She needs to make a living. She has no family money. Her father's dead. Her husband's dead, and she doesn't want to get married again. <laughs> right? She's against marriage. So she needs to earn the money. But she values fame as much as any man. I have the need to be known and admired. For my work.
0: It's interesting because I just read an article about Joshua Reynolds. Obviously, people around the 18th century sort of think of that time as the dawning of celebrity, but actually, we're talking about it there, aren't we?
1: Which is yeah, 100 years before. Oh, and I love that. So this is something that the masks of Afra Ben is about, actually. So I'm glad you've mentioned about this. It's not just talking about literal masks of masks that does come into it at one point. And it's not just talking about spying. It is talking about the journey that Afra Ben had to make as a working class to inveigle herself into the court and then through quick wit and chance, take opportunities as a spy. Thomas Gilligrew then, after she went on that dangerous mission. She may have been treated incredibly badly, which she was, by the way. I don't think I'm giving too much away about my show. We know she went to death of it. Um, but then he owed her somebody who had power in theatre. There are two main houses. So this is 50% of decision makers here owes her one. This is about the games she plays, the way she positions herself as well. So there are lots of different masks that she puts on when she's writing as herself, in introductions and in letters, and as the first person narrator, which you must have known people might have believed in Orinoco. This is based on her background. Is she the daughter of a left-hand general of six and thirty islands? There must have been some knowledge that that potentially could be taken as her background. A little bit like Madonna. (laughs) You know, kind of uh, self-creation because it would help her and enable her to take this position in a way that if she was I'm the daughter of a wet nurse and a barber and I would like to come and see my play probably would work now but it was a very different world then and essentially the Arts Council was royalty.
0: That's really interesting you said that she was owed one which makes sense so there was a some leverage that she'd got because of what she'd done previously that's mm. interesting I'm just thinking about the fact that obviously she was super confident she ran with the opportunity and then she was really good at it when it came to the writing so who knew you know not only did she have to earn money which was the main motivation and wanted the independence not have to marry. It was a moment in time where Charles liked banter. One of the reasons that Nell Gwyn was so popular with him is because she could do that. She had quick wit and they were self-deprecating in their wit and that was all part of it. So it's very interesting that you say that she was able to be quite honest when it came to her observations and her writing. Well, it was kind of an atmosphere that was in court wasn't it at the time as well and she felt supported as much as you can in these scenarios but she must have felt some sort of, not nurturing because it's wrong, word she must have felt that she was uh, surrounded by people that understood her
1: absolutely and there was that kind of court wit play that led into the idea of you don't have to show the real version of yourself because it's all about playing the game and being witty and so you don't have to delve okay oh yeah this is my background you know you can be the person that you want to be and with Nell Gwyn, I mean she became friends with Charles first They had, as you talk about, the banter. You know, that was their first contact. She asked for an annuity from Charles II. He was interested in Moll Davis, the sort of rival actress from the rival theatre at the same time. So essentially Nell Gwynn at the other theatre. He decided to go with Moll Davis as his main courtesan because she didn't ask for a fee. He gave her lots of gifts, which were probably worth way more than the annuity that Nell was asking for, but she was kind of practical-minded. And what she did was she became friends with him instead. Moll was his main courtesan lover, But she struck up a friendship and he was amused by her. And so true affection that happened, as far as we can tell, before she actually became his sort of full-time mistress, if you like. But yes, absolutely, in that situation, that personality, she's not alone in her mask wearing at that time, for sure. So talking about her talent,
0: at what point do you think she went, actually, I'm quite good at this? (laughs) You know, or was that straight off the bat?
1: Well, this is the thing. Uh, She was already known as a court witch before she became a spy. But what happened, what was really important, and it's kind of relevant now, is the plague happened and the theatres were closed. So she's making some headway with Thomas Killigrew. She's writing poetry. She's, you know, she's doing some script copying. She's sort of kind of getting in there. She's thinking, yep, great, this is going to happen. And then the theatre's closed. No writers are needed, no copiers are needed, and all the actors are sent away out of London. The theatre career isn't happening. So you've got links now. I wrote this before the pandemic and now performing it, when it gets to that part, it feels much more poignant because you think about what it was like to have projects lined up and then to just have suddenly, is it ever going to come back? That sense of, is what I really love and want to do in life Not going to be possible. And so you've got her then taking this opportunity to spy because A, she needs money. B, not much is really happening at this point in terms of theatre and it's probably safer to leave and let London recover. So she's still keeping in with those people, of course. And she comes back after many tribulations, finally. It's not an easy trajectory, is it? It's not as simple as that. She's wanting something. She knows she has talent. She's a verbal wit as well as a wit on paper, she's become known as that. And then, and this terrible national, well, certainly London-wide tragedy happens.
0: And that's the 1660s yeah, plague, absolutely. and then obviously fire of London 1666. Was she in Antwerp at the point where the fire happened? Yes, by-
1: she was. So she hears about it by letter.
0: Okay. Yeah. We're talking; she's in her twenties, and then by the time she kind of hits her stride with the writing, it's her thirties.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, she's got male and female lovers we know about. This is sort of dealt with more in my second play, Oranges and Ink, which is two women talking about their various amours, and as we do, and about their respective careers. It's a very different time by that point. And then you've got your own struggles. You've got struggles of how can I get a play on that won't get banned? So in Oranges and Ink, it's set during the time of the Popish plot. This paranoia that is falsely created. The Popish plot was completely made up by a guy called Titus Oates. It was propagated by the sort of pamphlets of the day. The famed courtesans is a mockery of it. And it's a mockery of him, Titus Oates, at a time when he hadn't been put in prison. He was eventually put in prison for lying, essentially, and causing the death of many Catholic people who were accused of being part of this plot that didn't even exist. So Signal Buffoon and Mr. Tickletex, and Mr. Tickletex is the Titus Oates character, she's publicly criticising him in the play. And so you've got a different kind of risk. She's got celebrity, as you say, she's... Still struggling for money, as we all know, a successful bit. But then, of course, then you suddenly get a gap of influx of cash. So she's still struggling that way. Make sure there's still money coming in and she needs another hit play. The hit play happens to be one that criticises a kind of public figure who has lots of supporters. And that's when she wrote this dedication to Nell Gwynn. She needed somebody who was strong and in a position of strength to support her. As a patron, for protection, essentially.
0: So you say that he took it from there, yes. and he wrote a section about their
1: friendship. Yeah, Nell Gwynn, mystery Stucking, that's very much based on the evidence I've mentioned from the time. If there are that many satires about their friendship, you think there's not rigorous historical evidence, but there's enough to make you think that probably was something that happened. And the dedication. And there are lots of lampoons about her helping with the, the funeral procession for her mother, which is quite funny. Nell Gwynn created a sort of mock funeral procession for her mother when she died she was a real a a drunkard um, she was kind of disreputable her mother and so to do this I mean it was kind of illegal I guess to have a, a sort of royal style funeral procession down the street this is Nell Gwyn she's got power you know by this point she's the king's courtesan apparently Afra Ben helped with that as well there are satires about that there are all of these references to it and this dedication, I decide, as a playwright, not as a historian, I'm not a historian, I'll leave other people to that, I choose to use that as the basis of a play. So I would say Oranges in Ink is taking three pieces of evidence and joining up the dots. It's very much about female friendships and about the absolute hard facts of what happened at that time with the Popish plot, how close they actually were as friends. There's no facts based on that, because... Well, it's something difficult to say. Oh, well, they were at each other's parties every week. Charles Beauclerc talks about Nell Gwynn having Afra Ben as a house party guest as well in Windsor. So, yeah, there's enough to make a, a play about it, I believe. However, The Master of Afra Ben is more analytical with hard facts and primary evidence. The Master of Afra Ben was written elements of education, but always the focus on entertainment. But there is a part of it kind of going, you should know who this person was. Oranges and Ink is me thinking, right, I really want to write about the plays, but there's scant evidence really about what she was actually doing. We know about particular lovers, we know what she was writing, we know which theatres she was working at and what was published but in terms of her social life and things like that, we're not 100% sure. It's a lot based on anecdotes, as it would be. It's not something that's documented in that way. However, that's what people want to hear about. That's the juicy stuff. It's just joining the dots into a confection of, of what facts we do know, and then let's talk about female friendship. At the time, it was just before Brexit happened. There was a lot of xenophobia happening and racism in the media about certain groups of people, and I felt that there was sort of topical... I was talking about that, but through these historical situations as well.
0: I was just thinking about the fact that Nell Gwynne, quote unquote, retired <laughs> after she became a courtesan, but actually she never really did because it's all still like you say, masks. It's all still acting at court. I mean, the procession that you know, it was all very much a continuation <laughs> of her career thus far. I don't think she ever really retired in that respect. It must have been the same for afro Ben. So I think it's very what we would call in historical terms is critical fabulation. You're putting together these things that make. A a lot of sense because these women did these certain things and you can pick up what's going on and you're just connecting the dots. But in a very authentic way, I'm sure that both of them would approve of. And there <laughs> would have been an affinity between them. So regardless of the fact, we don't know how close they were. There's no way they didn't have the respect and affection. And that's enough, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it is unfortunate. Women are just less documented generally. Obviously, we've got a lot about Nell Gwyn generally in terms of her relationships with men and her career on the theatre. And then in satires, we've got a lot about bitchiness towards other actresses, other courtesans, but that's not actually primary evidence. A lot of the kind of female history is kind of trivialised, if you like, in terms of document. And it is a problem. The female characters, for instance, that I wrote in The Mask of Apra Ben are ones that I knew there, but I, we'd know nothing about and had a mother. <laughs> We don't even know her name for certain. We know her father was called Bartholomew Johnson, and she will have been Mrs. Johnson. We don't know her first name. So that's sometimes, that's a gift because you go, OK, well, there's no way I can know about this. So I'm going to create this character because she did exist. And I'm not going to just have them as a blank. In some ways, they're my favourite characters that Afra becomes in The mass of Aphra Bern. We've got a courtesan. There's another gap in history later on where Janet Todd, that's the main biography I used of Aphra Bern. because you have to choose one because they say kind of different things Um, The Secret Life of Afro Ben by Janet Todd she talks about she may have gone on another spying mission to Venice at this time we can't be sure and so I went right using that (laughs) enough. and I thought well who are these wonderful courtesans like Angelica the courtesan from the rover who are the inspiration for that so I chose to create a character that was very much the influence if you like for that character they come from somewhere and they're only documented in a play and so it's that crossover between using historical fact but also So what she was writing about must have some link to the people that she'd met. And so let's also take inspiration from that.
0: 100%. And I think that's where we're at in the history world as well and heritage. If you don't connect those dots, if you don't do the thought experiment, if you don't create the creative piece, those people will still stay blanks. So you have to do that. You have to bring them to life. Even if it's so that we discuss how much is based on evidence, how much isn't, that's fine. That's all part of it, and I think that that's the beauty of it, and I think that's why your play is so important because you need to do that, and you need to have the confidence of Afro Ben in order to go there and do it. Yeah. <laughs> I stand by what I've read, and this is how it feels to me based on the information I've got at hand, and I think that's great to get onto her legacy. I mean, we, we're here. You've created plays about her life. You were inspired when you read about her. What do you think she would have wanted her legacy to be at the time?
1: Well, I refer back to that quote about I'm not content to write for a third night only. I value as much as any man so she she did profess herself as the first ever professional female writer that was her title which there may have been other women who just weren't documented so we put a little bit of a question mark around that but she was certainly the first in England woman writing for money and earning her living that way so I think she was proud of that that title and her work I think she wanted to be remembered. It tells you there she wanted to be remembered. She wanted her work to be remembered in the same way that the people before her had. She wanted a legacy as a classical writer as well because her poetry, the references, are very much to do with her classical education. She's writing populist but very clever, actually. They can be very rude. They're so satirical, you need to have some frame of reference of the historical background to really get it. You know, She wanted to be seen as uh, somebody who was intelligent, witty, bright and important, I think. And to be remembered as that, that quote, which was a kind of a private note, I think. You know, it says it all, doesn't it? What she wanted.
0: And it sounds like she had a sense that she was pioneering. I mean, she felt... Like she was pioneering. She was doing this for everyone that came after her. And then you, you reminded me again of Madonna in the sense that I always say, People won't talk about her and the way she deserves to be spoken about until she's not with us anymore because what she's doing, buttons are still pushed, you know, now she's a certain age and doing what she's doing and she's never compromised. She's always known, but she's very aware that she's trailblazing. And I think <laughs> that's obviously what Afra Ben felt and was obviously aware
1: of. Yeah. And I, I also I think Afra Ben had quite a tough time when she was getting older you know, because these are the different personas she's putting on. She's being the sexy, sexually available female writer. I'll use that because this is what the actresses are doing. So that's where I can have power. Then she's getting older, and the taste for theatre changes quite abruptly when Charles II dies. So she changes her style of theatre. So she goes much more into a kind of the Emperor of the Moon, Commedia dell'arte play. So you've got a sort of abrupt change. Okay, they don't want the sort of my naughty plays anymore. Let's go for a slightly more referential kind of realist play with lots of high comedy. So she's kind of reinventing herself right till the end and she ends up doing a lot more poetry as well because theatre's not as popular in that era. She's writing novels. She can't carry on doing that persona. It's difficult to carry on doing that persona when you're a different era of female and will be criticised for that. Madonna is an example, a cultural icon, somebody who has transformed herself so many times, her persona, hasn't she? And still continues to have people adore her however is also criticized for it now particularly when she's an older woman
0: still being sexy (coughs) shock horror um (laughs) i always say that you know it's interesting because totally sidetracking now but um You know, she's been curious, but actually she's not changed, it's everyone else around her. The goalposts moved, but she's consistent of being who she is, which is a creative being who will enjoy whatever she's enjoying at that moment and express it in whatever way she chooses to express it. Even though from the out in there's many different personas, I think the key thing is that actually she's true to herself as a creative being.
1: That's kind of like Bent really. I mean, you know, she's just finding a way that she can manoeuvre media, essentially. The media is in a different way, through satires and, you know, the court rather than Instagram. But, you know, it's her it's hermilia, her way of uh, navigating that.
0: And let's not forget the need to make money. Sometimes it becomes a negative aspect of someone's creativity, but actually that motivation keeps someone going. They've got to do it. Oh, Absolutely.
1: God. And you find out whatever way you can earn your living in the particular time that you are creating. So, OK, for Afroben... Theatre became less popular later on in her life after Charles II died, and so yes, you find different mediums.
0: Yes. So what's interesting about Aphra is that she was able to then sustain it. I think you know because you get better at something the more you do it. Let's face it, you would think. I mean, and you, sometimes you're just lucky because you've you know you already kind of got it and you have an idea and it works. But usually you have to kind of you know get better at your craft as, as you go
1: along. So that's the that's thing. So good, it? which is so amazing. Like. Orinoco is now seen by many as the first novel. It was completely sidelined and disregarded. Gulliver's Travels was named as the first ever novel. I mean, partly because there is that weird thing about Orinoco that it does sound like it's a first-person narrative. But as soon as they worked out, it's definitely not her history. This is sort of, it kind of goes against her, the sort of like, her own choice which is to kind of play the line between actually it's quite useful for me for people to think this is my history at this particular point but it kind of went against her in terms of her a memoir e- as opposed to yeah it's a a memoir exactly yeah. uh, it's actually a novel it's, it's fictitious she's made it uh, just happens to be in the first person she kind of shot herself in the foot in a way oh no it was made up and it's a novel oh my god
0: that's what's getting her the attention now isn't it the novels rather than the the plays that or the poetry matter yeah
1: well I think all of it I mean because it's so relevant you've got LGBTQ plus relevance there you've got the relevance of it's one of the first first books to be written in the English language that is critical of slavery and has a two non-white central characters so it's really culturally relevant you know now.
0: We've talked about what she would have wanted her legacy to be. What do you think it is? Because it's interesting, you know, she's still not necessarily known. That name's not as well known as it should be. We're here trying to correct that with our work. What would you say her legacy is today?
1: I think there should be a big, fat, blockbuster movie made of her spying adventures or a big, nice BBC TV series. I looked on IMDb. There are no listings of Afra Ben as a character on IMDb, the International Movie Database. Nothing. Nothing. There's this BBC documentaries where she's mentioned, but not as a character. I know of two projects. One person who's doing an MA in creative writing currently who is working on an Afro-Ben feature film script. I know of a own actress who has been working on a tv series but neither of which has you know got to that point where it's in production so people want to it's not for lack of people wanting to do that. so uh, you know a one person show a two person show you know it's um, you're not waiting for the money men or money women to want to go okay let's put x amount of money into this you just go and do it it's happening it's in the ether isn't it There's this statue campaign as well. There's a campaign called the A's for Afro campaign, and they are well on the way to having a statue built to Afro-Ben in Canterbury the place of her birth. So they're taking donations still. If anybody wants to find that, if you Google A for Afro statue campaign, you will find it. And they're taking donations for it. Uh, they came to speak at the end of our first night at the White Bear Theatre, which we are on at previously, recently. So we've been supporting them. They've been supporting our show. And it's important, you know, representation of women from history, of people from history. Obviously, statues have a history of representing power, not necessarily what society feels is important as a whole. And I think things are changing for that now. There is a movement towards representing people from history because of what they've done, rather than how much money and power they had. So there is a real shift. I mean, it's ridiculous. There are 2% of statues worldwide of women. I mean, it's ridiculous. We need to start representing who we feel has been of importance in history in this country. So yeah, that's something that's important. Uh, the same goes for representations of women from history and in, in drama as well.
0: Whilst you're talking about it, please tell us where we can... See the play. Are there any plans to bring back oranges and ink? Because I would love to see that too. So tell us, tell us what's going on so we can go and find you.
1: Right, so my play, The Master of Apra ben, is on on the 19th of March at the German Street Theatre in the West End. And that's on at 5 pm. And you can see all of the details of future performances on our theatre company website, which is a monkeywithsymbols.co.uk. So all future dates that have been booked in. Um, so we're also planning some more Kent dates at the Canterbury Festival, so we can bring it all back to the home of her birth. And we've also got a show on in Kent at the Brook Theatre in Chatham, which is next to Chatham Dockyards, which is bizarrely. Where the mission that Afroben was on in the Masters of Afroben, the spying mission, has links to Chatham Dockyard, where a raid happened—a really disastrous raid for King Charles II. His flagship was destroyed by the Dutch as a result of Afroben essentially and other spies being ignored about their warning. It kind of feels very much important when I'm doing these little shows in, in Kent as well, where she's born in Canterbury, but also very important kind of landmark to this story that's being told.
0: It's it there, it's in the fabric of the place, it's in the walls, in the the ghosts of all these things. They're there, so you're just bringing them back to life.
1: It's in the ether, isn't it? And yes, Oranges and ink Obviously, it's easier to bring back a, a one person show, but the plan is to bring back Oranges and ink at some point. It's already had a West End run, which went very well, and had a little tour. So, really, it's about finding the right event or festival to bring that back for that is to be continued Fab. we shall find out but yes it'd be nice to bring that at some point Brilliant. i'll let you know <laughs>
0: definitely i really want to see that i think it's very fascinating do you have a favorite afroben anecdote <laughs>
1: Well, I'll give you this one for free. So this is not from The Masters of Ben. I've been slightly coy about giving stuff away from that because I want you to come and see it because it's full of espionage and exciting things that I don't want to give away. But from Oranges and Ink, I'll give you this one. This is one of the satires a lot of people have heard of, actually, and I think it's even mentioned in Nell Gwynn, the play. Very briefly. Orange is Ink, it goes into slightly more detail. In one of the satires that mention the friendship between Nell Gwyn and Afra Ben, it goes like this. So I've already mentioned Moll Davis, haven't I? So the, the Nell Gwynn of the rival Playhouse. So Moll Davis is at the Dukes. Nell is at the King's house. They're both lined up to be the next main courtesan to Charles II, and they're both lead actresses at either playhouse. Right? Nell Gwyn gets wind of Moll Davis having Charles over, and they're going to see each other that evening. And so Nell decides to invite Moll Davis over for tea. Only it's not in the spirit of friendship. This is how this tale goes, anyway she gets her friend Afroben who has knowledge of herbs from the West Indies and finds out an elephant laxative used by zoologists right <laughs> it's pretty powerful stuff Afroben procures this particular powder for her friend. And Nell sprinkles it on the teatime buns, serves them up to poor old unsuspecting Moll Davis. And well, you can imagine the results when she goes to meet Charles that night. It was not pretty. And then as it goes, that was when Nell became the main courtesan. Do we know if it's true or not? We don't know, but it's certainly a good anecdote, isn't it?
0: Totally. Again, I don't think either of them would have minded, even if it's not true, because, you know, the spirit of friendship is there. It's real. That's what you do for your girlfriends when you need to. You get some elephant-like tips. (laughs) Brilliant. I love that. I mean, I'm sure Mole didn't, but yeah gosh okay <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta do what you gotta do <laughs> it's Let's awful get ahead. But,
1: but wonderful yes if it's semi-fictional we can accept yeah, it as well of yeah, course
0: to end on if afra ben were a superhero what
1: would her superpower be i think it would be wit <clears throat> so uh, she could use wit against her enemies and she uses it to either make them cower in shame in the corner or make them laugh at themselves I think I yes, love
0: that. Indeed. I could see it now. Her costume's got to be some sort of 17th century
1: kind of amalgamation, you know. <gasps> oh, it definitely involve men's trousers. I think. <laughs> Brilliant. But probably a course a course but men's trousers, I think. Again which we're, we're back to
0: Madonna again, aren't we? There you,
1: go. there you go. Get a costume designer involved. Yeah. Jump for on it already.
0: Oh I love it. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Claire, so much for being here today. It's been such a fascinating talk and the journey through Afro Ben's life, which I'm sure is the same for your play, and I can't wait to see it.
1: Yeah, I look forward to meeting you in person as well afterwards.
0: Well, Claire, thank you for being here and in the spirit of Afro Ben I'll see you treading the boards. Thank you and have a lovely